Hello, and welcome to Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm your host, Pacifico Soldati. The show explores topics from law and business to consciousness, spirituality, and everything in between. We feature accomplished leaders across many fields to help you get more out of your life. You can learn more and stay up to date at theluepodcast.com. If you're not familiar with my background, I'm a helper, parent, marketer, attorney outlaw, certified mediator, story brand guide, omnist, yoga teacher, and a former paratrooper and award-winning army chef at the 82nd Airborne Division and U.S. Army Special Operations Command. I'm the founder and CEO of the Soldati Group, a marketing agency helping startups, small businesses, and law firms leverage the power of story to grow their businesses. Law, the Universe, and Everything is a production of the Soldati Group. All opinions expressed by the hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of the Soldati Group or guest employers. This podcast is for information and entertainment purposes only, and these discussions do not constitute legal or investment advice. Today's episode is brought to you by Prosperitas, an animated video agency that can help you bring your company's ideas, values, products, and messages to life with the power of video storytelling. Whether you strive to win more customers, engage, or educate your audience, Prosperitas will craft each video specifically targeted to fit your brand and vision. Visit prosperitasagency.com today to learn more. That's P-R-O-S-P-E-R-I-T-A-S agency.com to find out how Prosperitas can create the best animated videos your company has ever had. My guest today is Dan Schinder. Dan got his break in music at 15 in 1978 when he was asked to tour the United States as the drummer for Spirit of America. He went on to play up and down the Sunset Strip in Hollywood and L.A., in different bands for years, along with other tours, session work, and producing other up-and-coming artists. Since then, he's done many things in life, including falling in love with the medium of video, while he had a cooking show on TV in the early 2000s. Fast forward, Dan has built a global presence with 1 million active followers and growing by 2,500 a week from over 130 countries, reaching millions more people a month using social media marketing, and brand building strategies he developed on Facebook while growing the Drum Talk TV brand. The high level of engagement yields an average of 2.5 million in reach, 1 million post engagements, 2 million video views, and 2,500 new followers, all in every seven day period. Dan has never paid for advertising or boosting posts of the brand's content. With Dan Schinder's social media on steroids workshops, courses, and consulting, Dan shares exactly how he turned Drum Talk TV from an idea into a profitable business and how you can utilize these strategies to grow your business too, no matter what stage you're at currently. What Dan teaches can work for virtually any business in any industry from a local model to global. He and his wife, Enja, have a blended family of 11 kids and 19 grandkids. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dan, and welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you. That last part, every time I hear it, almost makes me fall over, even though I'm very familiar with the situation. <laughs> 11 <laughs> kids. How did I end up here? <laughs> Thanks for having me, Pacifica. Uh, I appreciate it very, very much. How are you doing? Oh, my pleasure. I'm doing fantastic today. So I'd love for you to take me back a little bit. How did you get started as a musician, as a kid? I mean, you were basically off to the races by, you know, mid-teens. So it sounds yeah. like, you know, pretty incredible journey. So I, um, my parents were the youngest pretty much of their families. So all my cousins were older than me. And I had some cousins, um, one and two in particular, uh, who already were playing instruments and 
the back when I was like five, six, um, seven, you know, the Led Zeppelin was coming out. Yes. Deep Purple, you know, all that stuff was hitting the scene. Cream had been on the scene. So I was exposed to this music, which is now ancient relic classic rock um, at a very young age. And I saw my cousin play drums a few times when he was 12, 13. He played at my other cousin's bar mitzvah. He sat in with the band. And I think that was like the last straw. When I saw them call him up and he sat in with this band at my other cousin's bar mitzvah, and, and my cousin David was 13 already who was playing, that was like, I want to do that. But I did not think about it as a career. I just wanted to play drums. And my parents tell me, told me a story that I do not recall that a guy before this happened. So I was six and change at this age that I just told that story. But prior to that, they said that a guy came to the door offering um, accordion lessons and that apparently I overheard it. And my parents said, no, thank you. Close the door. And they said that I flip flopped on the floor, kicked and screamed, kept saying, I'm going to miss my chance. I'm going to miss my chance. I have no idea who, yeah, I have no idea who or what I was channeling because within that year or so, and I thought, okay, I want to play the drums. I wasn't thinking of a career. I, even at that age, I think was falling in love with the idea of being a scientist and being an oceanographer. I was a huge fan of Jacques Cousteau. I watched every special of his on TV, the great oceanographer, and so my parents, after I saw my cousin David play, were crazy enough when I said, I want to play drums, I want to play drums. They said, okay, we'll give you, we'll get you drum lessons. And if you stick with it, we'll buy you a drum set. Because when you start out playing drums, you don't start out right at a drum set usually. You're playing a practice pad. You got to learn how to use the sticks, rudiments, you know, all that stuff. So they started me out and... Um, I really took to it to say the least. So for my, I think it was for my seventh birthday, they got me like a real drum set, not a toy drum set. And my parents were not wealthy. They were okay, but they weren't wealthy, but they got me a real pearl five piece drum set and away I went. And I would, I fell in love with music because my parents always had music playing in the house, listening to Simon and Garfunkel, The Fifth Dimension. Um, my dad got a little bit more rocky with the Yardbirds and Cream, I think, and stuff like that. So I was exposed to music, and and my dad was not a musician, but he played a little bit of guitar, if that makes any sense. He's, I have mm -hmm. his, I'm looking at it on a shelf in my office here, his 1957 Giannini guitar when Giannini was still making them back in Brazil by hand, and he was 17 when he got that. And so... You know, I, I don't really come from a musical family, but a family of music appreciators. So mm. I I just, I got good real quick. And my dad um, took me to my first concert when I was 14 in 1977, down the street from where I was born. I grew up in the San Fernando Valley, but I was born in Inglewood, California, down the street from the LA Forum. And mm. My first concert was Led Zeppelin, a flash in the pan band that's not around anymore. You may have heard of them. <laughs> and, <laughs> and we had really great seats and it was mind blowing. I knew all their music inside and out. I was playing it already. 
I had posters of them on my walls, and there they were. And by the third song, the light bulb went on above my head, and I thought, wait a minute, you mean this could be like a job? And there went <laughs> oceanography. And <laughs> yeah, I told my parents, I said, I don't want to be an oceanographer anymore. I changed my mind. Well, what do you want to be? I, I want to be a professional drummer. And after we revived my mom with the paddles and smelling salts, <laughs> because my first two initials are DR for doctor, of course I was going to grow up and be a doctor. She was just a little, I think, put off by it. However, exactly one year later, she found a um, ad for Spirit of America looking for a drummer and asked me if I wanted to go to the audition. She would take me. We didn't have to bring my drums. The drummer was getting ready to leave, and we would just go and observe, and maybe I'd get up and play with them or something. I don't know. So I said, okay, yeah, and I had no idea what kind of music it was. So keep in mind, I'm 15. I'm playing stuff like Led Zeppelin, Deep Purple, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, Genesis, Yes, Gentle Giant, pretty crazy music for a 15-year-old to be playing. And so we go, and they're rehearsing in like this small auditorium, and we're the only people in the seats, my mother and I, and we're watching them, and they're like a singing group of the band. And they're playing stuff like ABBA, Neil Diamond, Linda Ronstadt, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. And I'm... I'm like, my bubble's bursting. And I turn to my mom while they're playing and I whisper in her ear and I said, mom, I don't want to play this kind of music. And it, almost before I could finish that sentence, she whipped around, she grabbed me by the shirt with both hands and she's shaking me with every syllable saying, what difference does it make? What kind of music it is? They're going to pay you to play music and see the country. Your father and I could never send you on a trip like this. You said you wanted to be a musician. And when she said that, I realized, yeah, what difference does it make what kind of music it was? Because prior to that, when I was younger and started playing the drum set, we're talking, you know, 1969, 70, music was not segregated the way it is today by genre on music stations. I mean, sure, you had your classical symphonic stuff, you had your pop music and maybe your deep traditional jazz. And that was about it. Talk radio, news, sports. So what I would do when I was a little kid, I'd put on my headphones, sit on my drum set and just play to whatever came on. So you would hear, and if anyone listening is from LA, you might remember a station on AM 93 KHJ and 93 KHJ. I still remember it. And they would play, you'd hear Led Zeppelin, then you'd hear Bobby Sherman, then you'd hear the Beatles, then Neil Diamond, and just uh, soul music, real R&B, uh, just all over the map, Jimi Hendrix to Steppenwolf to the Fifth Dimension. And, and I didn't know the difference between genres. To me, it was just all music. And I learned all these different techniques without realizing it. So when my mother said that, I hearkened back to that, like, oh, yeah, because by then I knew there was a difference. And that's how I became a professional paid drummer, touring drummer at 15 years old, going from L.A. to Long Island, back a different way, mainly playing state fairs with Spirit of America opening for Hart, Bloister Colt, Seals and Crofts, Pat Boone, Styx, and it was just freaking amazing. It was, it was amazing. I just... I had the best parents... 
anyone could have when it comes to supporting a passion. And that taught me so much about being a parent. And I, none of my kids are musicians because none of them came to me with that passion. And I was not going to push them into football or soccer or art or collecting fossils like I did or drumming, you know, cause that's not what it's about. I didn't, we don't need another meat. Believe me, we do not need another meat. <laughs> you know, each of my kids and Angela's the same way each of her kids uh, are their own selves. And I, I just, Oh God damn, I miss them. And I wish they could see drum talk TV. I wish they could know. And my dad did, but my mother passed before we met. But that's how that all came about. And imagine this, after that experience, I came back home from that tour one day before registering for my high school classes. And I, and back then in the Stone Age, when the earth was still cooling, high school started at ninth grade. So it was ninth, it was, I'm sorry, 10th grade. It was 10th, 11th, 12th. So I had been playing in concert band orchestra and Tuesday night jazz band all through junior high and here i come back from this tour we're living the dream the day before registering for school and i'm standing in line with all these other students not with a better than this complex but pretty much a what the fuck am i doing here complex why do I, <laughs> really like why do i need to go to school i have found my career path and i'm doing it i'm getting paid to do it what's all this for and it was it was difficult so I registered for my classes and I signed up for music theory. Strangely enough, not concert band and not orchestra. I signed up for music theory because I wanted to learn more about melodicism, you know, other instruments and stuff. And I signed up for marching band and I hated both of them. And I hated both of them in part because marching band was just way too regimented for me it was way way too strict zero creativity and i couldn't conform to it i'm just not a fit it's why i'm not in the military i you have <laughs> served i love people that served when i had my cooking show my favorite show was a special we did cooking for 500 troops that just came back from and we're going to afghanistan with the 146 airlift wing air national guard base in point mcgo i love I love and respect more than anybody in the world, people who have served our country, but it's just not, wasn't a fit for me. And that's what marching band felt like. So I bailed and I went into PE. I told my parents and I, and I left music theory. Coincidentally, they were both taught by the same uh, instructor, teacher, whatever, Mr. Rochkis, who was from Austria and I'm not stereotyping, but he had a, this heavy accent and everything was very regimented. I never once saw him smile and ever since i was a kid and even now at 58 i don't do something unless it's fun and i don't learn well unless it's fun and that's how i teach i think the best learning experiences are where people can really have a good time and more information gets soaked into their radar so these are just some of the lessons i learned along the way and instead i started jamming with other musicians that were typically always older than me and uh, within a year, I was in a band that was playing all over L.A. Um, I stuck with school every year. I went to my mom and said, can I take the high school proficiency test? Well, you know, you're just finishing the second semester of high school. Why, why don't you see how 11th grade is like? So that summer, I went on tour with the same people again, came back, 
started 11th grade, the end of the first semester, mom, can I take the high school proficiency test? She says, you know, just finish 11th grade and see what that's like. Okay. And then during the summer, I said, you know, I really want, she says, you know, you only got one year left. Why don't you stick it out to your high school? I'm like, man, Hell she knew this whole the whole way. Yeah, she knew the whole time. So I did graduate high school. I did tour some colleges, believe it or not, to possibly go into art school. And I had a fascination with animation. I think I was a little lost at that point. I think I was a little frustrated with some of the band bullshit, excuse my language, um, you know, the drama that goes with it. And, and my mom was an artist. I, I was an artist as well. And I think that was sort of a side interest for just a little while. And I ended up just not doing it, stick, stuck with music. And um, that's kind of how the first 18 years of my life went. And, and it was amazing. It really was. My, my wife, you know, Angela, she is always saying you had a, uh, a dream childhood. You know, you had parents that loved you. You don't come from a broken home. My parents stayed together. Their high school sweethearts stayed together till my mom passed. Um, you know, and, and it was, I didn't grow up with money. I didn't have that sort of dream childhood, but I, I grew up in a house of love with one other sibling and I wanted to be a parent when I grew up. That's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be a daddy. And, and I started early. <laughs> my, my first, not as early as Enja, but my first born was, uh, right after I turned 23 and then just kind of kept going from there. So, you know, she has seven, I have four together. We have the 11, 27 to 46 years old. And, uh, they're all older than I am now. Certainly mentally. That's for fucking sure. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that's the whole music part. Um, at 18, I just a little more, I, I left being in bands and I got more into writing and recording stuff myself, producing other artists. Then I got into writing music and recording it for commercials, for radio production, voice casting, voice directing, doing voiceovers myself. And then uh, got to a point where I just left music altogether for many, many years. I still, depending on what marriage I was in, and that sounds weird, and what was going on at the time, sometimes my drums and everything were even packed away for years at a time and I didn't play, but um, still tapped on stuff, still mu musician heart, sat in at gigs here and there, maybe got asked to do a session here and there, but it wasn't like my day in, day out, you know, vocation or even hobby at that point for, for quite a while. Wow. That's a hell of a story. Yeah. Sorry. That was kind of a long answer. No, no, that's, that's fantastic. I love it. Like, yeah, I, I can't. Are you sure you don't want to ask like... me anything else? <laughs> I, yeah. I can't even imagine like, yeah, 15, just like what a come down, like, you know, going on tour and then showing back up and like registering for classes. Like, I don't know if I would have been able to handle that. I'd probably just be like, okay, I'm done. Like, goodbye. Like, yeah, I'm, it's funny. I'm already way past mentioned... this. Yeah. It's funny. You mentioned the come down thing. Cause my mom used to complain to me legitimately all through high school when I was playing in a band all around town and all that. So we would practice three, four nights a week at my parents' house. They were smart. They wanted to know who I was around and all that. So turn the garage into an area where we could set up and blast away. And so we would practice three or four times a week and we would gig on f almost every Friday and Saturday. And she said that Sunday and Monday, I was just impossible to be around. I was cranky. I was grumpy. I was short tempered. <laughs> 
and and she finally said you you work your way up from tuesday to friday the first gig up to this high you live the dream you do the gigs and then sunday and monday you just you crash so hard she says you got to find a way around that because you're you're what is she used to call me my nickname was inconsiderate bastard that's what she used to call me and <laughs> And it's like, I was very offended because I didn't see myself that way. But I guess I was just miserable to be around because of the emotional crash. And eventually, I guess I just became more mature and more considerate and more um, um, aware of that. And, and you know, you you hopefully learn stuff as you get older. And I was able to balance that out. So yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because there were come downs every freaking week. And even into my first marriage, playing places like Madame Wong's, the Troubadour, where my parents dated, um, you know, other places up and down the Sunset Strip and other gigs. I got better at it. <laughs> I think I got better at it. So yeah, that's the music story. The first first 18, 20 year, 20 something years, whatever. Wow. So how did you transition from there into having a cooking show of all things? So the time span went from about 26 years old. So that would have been 93, I guess. Is that right? No, that would be 30. That would. Okay. Sorry. My math brain is really worn out. So yeah, it would have been, um, I was born in 63. Help me out here. So that would have been uh, after right around the time Alex was born. So about 1988, 89, something like that. I, I kind of stopped playing music. And then in when I was 37, uh, a few marriages down the road, if you will, all the kids are gone for the summer. And my wife at the time were really into cooking and cooking or uh, watching cooking shows on tv so one day watching all these shows i'm critiquing them like oh that's oh they're so annoying oh this one's great wow i learned a lot from this one hey that looks fun you know i could do this you know what I, I could do this i and i just came up with an idea for cooking show i didn't know how to sell a cooking show idea so i joined the local community access television show and I kind of designed in my head with the look, the feel, what the takeaways would be. I jokingly said to a friend when he said, what do you know about doing a cooking show? And I said, I got seven televisions in my house. I know everything I need to know about TV. You know, just joked about that. And I started a show on Community Access called Chew on This. And I went through the workshops to learn how the camera works and how the editing program works. And then I hired everyone that worked at the television station to work on my show. And I had a great job at the time. I was national sales manager for a company that sold audiovisual gear and accessories, stuff like that. So I did this on the weekends, filmed the show on a Saturday and edited at night. So I'd work all day, come home, have dinner, go to the TV station, do all the editing till they closed at like 11 or midnight, come home, sleep, start all over. It was brutal, but I loved it. I just fell in love with the whole idea of video. And then over time, got good at it uh, to the point where I ended up producing and doing post-production for two other television shows that weren't mine. And um, the whole theme of my show was chew on this, of course, has a double meaning. It means think about it and also means eat. But I wanted the takeaways to be to talk about 
some nutritional aspects, but also the history and etymology of a certain dish, like eggplant parmesan. Where'd the eggplant come from? Came from Europe. It didn't come to America till Thomas Jefferson brought it here from Europe on a trip. But it sat on American kitchen tables as an ornament until the 1950s. Stuff like that is what, the, and then I'd show you how to make the dish. Um, and for the last, so that was like four and a half year span. And the last two years or so of that, I had a co-host who was about 12 years, 15 years older than me, who was a professional executive pastry chef who had a total opposite personality. He was in the CIA before he went to the CIA. So he was in the CIA <laughs> before he went to the culinary arts of America in Napa Valley. And he had that personality like, okay, so I'm going to show you how to make a chocolate cheesecake. And, and, and tomorrow we're going to do a no gluten. And I'm back behind him with this giant chef's knife acting like I'm, you know, stabbing him in the back, making a face, you know, and, I, and then I get on. Oh, thanks, Ed. Yeah. So blah, 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 blah. I'm bouncing off the walls and he's like really straight. We were a really a good team because of <laughs> that. And we, we were aware of who we were and how we played off each other. And it was a lot of fun. I ended up getting sponsors. I ended up being in about 60 stations throughout the Southwest. And then um, it just crashed and burned quite honestly when um, that wife and I, who we don't talk about, I'm really great friends with the two wives before that, who I have kids with, um, but that wife, we, we, we broke up and it just took all the wind out of my sails and I just, oh, it was, it was rough. So I didn't do any video work for quite a while until I was working, kind of crawling out of the dust from that. If you want to hear what happened after the cooking show, I, I invited yeah. myself into that. So, okay. So <laughs> <laughs> I was working at a call center for the largest mystery shopping company in America called mystery shopping. So if you ever heard of secret shoppers, we would recruit them from the consumer pool. We would train them. And I, I started in sales and then I worked in customer service. Then I ran the customer service department. And while I was running the customer service department, um, one of the two owners opened the door and just kind of curled his finger at me with a real stern facing, like, come here. And I'm rewinding in my head. Oh my God, what did I do wrong? You know, I couldn't think of anything. He said, so I saw your show. My show was on reruns at this point. And this is in Ventura, California, where the show started. I was still living it. And I thought, oh no, he's going to say that it's a conflict. And I, I said, that's reruns. I'm not doing that anymore. He says, no, no. Larry, the other owner, has always wanted to open our own multimedia department and have training videos on how to, secret shoppers are going to shop the different clients, Citibank, McDonald's, talk about all that stuff. So they asked me if I would do that. And we opened our own training department. I created the training program that was um, like, uh, imagine if you you say, I want to shop banks and be a secret shopper for banks. Okay, there's Citibank, there's Wells Fargo, there's Bank of America, and you gotta be trained on each one. So I created the videos that were shot at the banks that showed how to go up to the teller, what to ask the teller. If you're waiting for a loan officer, these are the things that are gonna be on the questionnaire. And you'd have to then do multiple joints, uh, you know, bubble answers after each like two or four minute video module. And there's no way to get them wrong because they would show you what the right answer is and then just do it again. And then after you go through that set of modules, you're certified to shop Citibank or Taco Bell or whatever it was. Um, then I ended up doing some marketing videos for some of these companies. And um, 
I ended up leaving that company to move to Las Vegas where I met Anja and I was a video producer for one of the very first streaming video companies called Hello World on the consumer side and VM Direct on the affiliate side because it was a multi-level marketing company. And I produced all the promos and uh, for the consumer and all the promos for the big events for the affiliates. And while I was working there, I started getting so much side work mm -hmm. that um, I ended up leaving and starting my own video production company again. And, and I had met Enja like, I, I moved to Vegas with that job. I had, I already got the job before I moved there. And I met Enja three months after that. So she came into my world while that world was evolving, if you will. Mm. And then eventually that evolved into, you know, the, the social media work that you do now. Yeah. So um, the way that happened was, um one of my biggest clients took us into and i to australia for me to film um a webinar a seminar an in-person seminar um and i proposed to enter there on bondi beach in sydney the most exclusive beach there so i had planned some other stuff for us before we went including art showings for her around sydney and um long story short i ended up staying for two years she stayed for three months i got involved with the charter yacht industry i did a documentary on a vessel that had won the sydney to hobart race for the ocean 60 class the year before that and um when i came back i came back to take care of my dad who was literally dying i mean they thought i'd come home he'd see me roll over and that would be it he ended up living another 16 weeks and i was his 24 7 caregiver living with him and when he passed away and i grabbed my duffel bag out of the closet went home to enja i said i don't want to work with big companies anymore let me just do your marketing and after a while she said well and, and this was like after three months she said you know I think you need to do something that really fills your cup. And I saw this thought bubble above her head that basically said, this fucker needs to find someone else to play with. You know, I think it just got a little too close for her and I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was 49 years old and for the first time in my life, didn't know what I wanted to do. And she said, well, you told me you used to teach drum lessons. Why don't you do that? And in that instance, I realized, yeah, I used to teach drumming. And I'm a trained trainer, which I am. I'm a certified trainer of NLP and hypnotherapy. And I know video streaming, video production. Yeah, I'm going to open an online thing called Dan's Drum Clinics. That's where I really cut my teeth with social media. I had followers in 64 countries before I even published my first lesson. And after six months, that evolved into a different idea that Anja, I got to give her most of the credit for, became Drum Talk TV, which now we're in our ninth year. And that's that's where all the social media skills. What I did was I didn't pay attention what anyone else is doing. I really got granular with looking at our content and looking at what worked and let's figure out why so we can leverage that. And what didn't work and let's identify why so that we can polish it or just throw it away. I did that every day. I still get really fanatical about our own statistics because I want to know what's working to always improve. I'm tapped into the industry to really understand what algorithms are changing. Sometimes I can figure it out. And every time the algorithms change, you get some 
self-professed thought leaders that go out there and say, the sky is falling. You're never going to get the kind of reach you used to get and all that. And by the way, in, in the time that I gave you those numbers for my introduction two months ago or whatever, our numbers have doubled and they've stayed doubled as far as reach and engagement and new followers every week, every month. They've stayed doubled since then. So that's like our, our new normal. So the sky's never actually following falling. You just need to figure out what's working or learn from someone who's actually gotten great results. One of my mentors who writes business books says never take advice from someone who's never achieved great success at what you want to do. And too many people in that world, in any industry, Pacifico, they're just doing what they see everyone else doing because everyone else is doing it. Mm. So it must be the right thing to do, right? Or they're taking advice from their 14-year-old niece because she's on social media. She must know what to do. It's horrible. There are big, big legacy brands playing, paying agencies tens of thousands of dollars a month that have no idea what they're doing. And the legacy brand can't follow up on them and call them out on it because they don't know enough about it to even identify what they're not doing right. It's, it's just unbelievable. So quite honestly, that's what sets me apart. I'm one of the only people that teaches this stuff or provides the service from having actual hands-on personal experience of creating a huge, enormous following, huge, enormous engagement, 100% organically, meaning no boosting posts, no spending money on ads or any of that. And it, it works for any industry. And that that's how kind of like I got to what I'm doing now with social media on steroids, which is my branded workshops, courses, services, all that jazz under my company, Advanced Social Marketing. Because in the first year of Drum Talk TV, when our chief digital officer came to me and said, hey, looky here, this third-party measuring uh, statistical company Simply Measured says that we're getting 900% more online and engagement than all of our industry peers. That's all the big media companies, all the big magazines. We're not even a year old when she's telling me this. So in that moment, I thought, because I like to think of myself as a giver, I thought, I got to open another company and design some workshops and seminars and webinars and teach other people how to do what I've done so they can thrive doing what they love. And that's how Social Meet on Steroids was born. So I've cursed myself with two full-time 80-hour-a-week careers with Drum Talk TV and advanced social marketing. But I love it. It's fun. And I started teaching that in the music industry to gold platinum artists and makers of gear and branched out working with you name it, I've probably worked in that industry. If not, I've worked in enough industries to show that it will work for any industry, whether it's B2C or B2B. And that's kind of how that evolved from my, my musical experience. So tell me, what are some common misconceptions that people have about social media and how to be successful? That's a great question because there's many. Um, the biggest People are going to think I'm nuts because I'm the only person I see saying this and teaching it. But the biggest misconception is how hashtags work. When people use, first of all, too many hashtags, but when people use generic hashtags like motivation, inspiration, motivation Monday, let's get pumped, you know, things like that, or in the musical world, drums, percussion, Hashtag jazz, hashtag speed metal, hashtag timpani, hashtag marching. When people use generic tags, they don't do a thing. 
for your posts. Hang in there with me, folks. Don't tune out. Don't tune out. They don't do a thing. But people say, yeah, but they're trending. These tags are trending. They work for the platforms. They work for a consumer who might see a popular hashtag, search it, and they might discover stuff that they haven't seen before. But think about this for a moment. If 600,000 people are posting even one post on Monday with hashtag Motivation Monday, if you're one of those 600,000 people, how is your post going to show up if someone clicks on that hashtag, if they see it in another post or they search it on Google or whatever platform you're using on it? It's, it just doesn't work that way. You're one grain of sand on that beach of the same hashtags. Hopefully that makes sense so far. So what I teach people to do is brand your own hashtags. So Pacifico Motivation Monday, Pacifico Inspiration, Pacifico Let's Get Primed. Does that make sense? That way you're branding your hashtags and no one else is using those other than maybe a guest on your show who's tied to that topic. So some people say, well, how will people know to look up that hashtag to search it? Don't worry about that. But the, the answer really is they won't know to begin with, but when they see it enough, they'll either click on it and then it populates whatever platform you're on. Let's say Facebook, they click on that hashtag. It's going to populate with only your posts tied together with that same hashtag. What does that do? They're going to discover all this content you've put out with that same hashtag that they never saw before. They'll get curious. They'll then search that hashtag on YouTube, on Instagram, on TikTok, on Google. And wherever they search it, it's going to bring up only your posts with that hashtag, which filters out the other 599,999 other people using Motivation Monday. Does that make sense? Oh, definitely. I think it's a little counterintuitive because people are just kind of like, well, how can they, how will they ever find me? Like I didn't use the main one, you know, or right. you have people want to use both or something. Exactly. And the other thing is if even though, and this boggles my mind, like the platforms allow you to put in 12, 20 hashtags, but yet if you put that many in, they will squash the reach on your post. Not only that, you should have in your post a call to action that leads people to your website or to sign up for your email list or whatever, however your sales funnel works. The more hashtags you have, the more distractions there are for people to click on instead of your call to action. You should never have more than two or three. There's no reason for 10 or 20. It does not help your posts be found, people. Stop doing what the 14-year-olds are doing. It just doesn't work like that. So that's the biggest misconception. The biggest error in strategies is this. When people that are a business or when a company or business or brand only posts what's for sale, what's for sale, what's for sale, sign up for this, what's for sale, download this coupon, buy this, here's our new location, here's our new sandwich, here's the new thing, buy, 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 buy. When, think of yourselves as consumers, wear the fan's hat. Put the fan's hat on and ask yourself, 
would you follow a brand that all they're doing is advertising to you? If there's no way for you to participate, there's nothing to edify you, nothing to entertain you. Would you watch a TV show that had five minutes of a show and then 25 minutes of commercials? Would you listen to a radio station that played one song and then had 25 minutes of commercials, then another song? That so why do we run social media channels like that? And I know why it's because people say, well, that's why I got on social media to promote what I do. But if all you do is promote people, you'll wear people out and they will stop paying attention. Look at the legacy brands. People look up your five favorite legacy brands in any, in automotive, sports, music, travel, food, fashion, whatever. And, and, and the legacy brands will have millions of followers, but you look down their timeline, nothing's happening on their posts. They're getting almost no comments, almost no shares because no one's paying attention. Their like is left behind, but they've clicked on follow or the brands are not posting frequently enough. That's another thing for, for it to end up in your feed. It's so important to mix in things that will keep the user's attention. So the followers attention so that when you do post an ad for what's for sale, you've got a captivated audience that likes you, trusts you and you have achieved brand love, that does not happen from every week saying, come down to the car lot, biggest sale of the year. We got the hot dog guy and the jolly jumper, bring the kids. You do that every freaking week and they're gonna stop following you, no matter what business you're in. So those are two of the 342 biggest things. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you, that's great. So tell me, Dan, how has a failure or an apparent failure set you up for later success and do you have a favorite failure who that is so deep to answer that in reverse um my favorite failure i'm gonna give you two my favorite failure is I, I don't see as a failure, but most people would categorize this as a failure. So we'll use it, something that didn't work out. And I don't believe in failures, I only believe in new discoveries. But in the moment when it happens, when you get divorced and your marriage doesn't work out, you know, that's, that's why a lot of people hang in there. They don't wanna get divorced because then they'll be viewed as a failure. Oh, I gotta tell my family, her family or his family, you know, however that breaks down, there's all that. And so, those are probably my two favorite failures or lessons is my, we don't talk about the third marriage, but the first two marriages with my first two wives, who I have kids with both of them, um, because I had learned more about myself. I learned more about who I am. I learned more about what would make me happy. And it put my journey compass more on the right path in the right direction. So that by the time I did meet Anja, I knew exactly what I wanted and I knew that she absolutely fit the mold. Um, when she grilled me for two hours on what she says and said at the time is not a date, we're just gonna meet. She didn't know that during those first two hours where I couldn't even get a word in, she was telling me all about herself by asking me everything about me. And and by then I knew what I wanted. You know, I was, how old was I? I was 30, I was 40 two 44 whatever it was i don't even remember but by then I, i'd gone through all this other stuff and i knew so those lessons all along the way were you can't put a price on them another one is um 
kind of embarrassing because earlier I said how I grew up listening to all this different music, you know, and it didn't matter to me what genres were, but towards the end of my performing music career, I was in a progressive rock band called Opus One and we played pretty snobby music. It was a combination of um, Frank Zappa meets Genesis meets, Interesting. yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe a touch of uh, Frank Zappa, Genesis, and Gentle Giant. It was just really <laughs> off the wall stuff. And we, we ended up, believe it or not, actually having a song on the radio that was somewhat commercial. But wow. what happened was during that time, especially in America, progressive, progressive rock was going away. <clears throat> Excuse me. And what was coming in was the thin ties and the short hair and spandex and hair metal. And we wanted nothing to do with any of that. So here we were, a bunch of snobby um, progressive rock idiots playing at Madame Wong's, the Troubadour, the Whiskey, those places, playing on the same bill as Motley Crue, Great White, Dokken, you know, all those bands. And we just didn't want anything to do with it. And to put it frankly, we missed the boat. And it <laughs> yeah, we didn't get the record deal. We didn't get the, we just missed the boat. Our, our scene got phased out like vaudeville did. And that was a big lesson, but it took me a while to get my head around that lesson. Um, and really the lesson in that one was it's okay to have integrity and scruples and, and all of that, but you know what? Be open. What's the definition of luck? We all know that the definition of luck is preparedness meets opportunity. There's really no such thing as luck. And, and we weren't prepared musically. We could have played anything, but our brains and emotionally, we were not open to it. We just weren't open to it. And, and I'm okay with that because even with the hardships that came in my life after that with you know, not having to get a corporate job and working in this, you know, not being a musician and, you know, the, the marriage, everything that came with it. That's okay. All that stuff rolling downhill on the boulders with broken glass, barebacked, it all led to where I am right now. And, and everything's amazing right now. I've got the most amazing wife who has the most amazing kids who love me and my kids love her and my kids love her kids and her kids love my kids and our grandkids all. It's just, I'm doing what I love. Um, I'm having more fun as a musician, musician being the CEO and founder and drum talk TV guy than I ever had as a drummer or musician. Um, and with social media on steroids stuff, I love, love, love sharing my knowledge, my wisdom from all that. I put in the 50,000 hours for people. Just learn from me and do it. You know, um, I, I really love that. I think I'm a teacher at heart. And I think, dare I say, um, I've never said this publicly. I've said it to my tight inner circle of my inner circle that I think I'll be teaching this stuff longer than I'll be doing Drum Talk TV. I think I'll have left and sold Drum Talk TV before I stop teaching these things and speaking about it around the world and writing books. And I think that will take a lot longer to trail off because I do really believe in helping people and drum talk TV helps people in a whole different way. This can really, really help people thrive doing what they love. If they are just open enough to learn from me and stop paying attention to the nonsense out there and, 
and not take what I teach and reinvent it, tweak it, do what their drunk uncle at the holiday table said or their 14 year old niece, because that's what, because when you do that, it won't work. If you do exactly what I teach, I guarantee you, you will get results, no matter what industry you're in. I, I have clients from carbon fiber components for the mining and railways and refinery industries and breweries, all the way to a, a woman who makes pound cakes, you, you know, Veronica, woman who makes pound cakes and mm -hmm. ships them around the state, all the way to musicians, all the way to dental tech authors. I, I mean, real estate trainers just goes on and on and on. So it works for anything. If you don't F it up, that's a technical term, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Does that make sense? I think that's to me what license are all about. Lessons are all about. There, there really are no failures. But I know what you mean. I'm not criticizing how you're putting it. We all know what that means. But we need, we need. They're not failures when we can open our mind and look back at them and glean from them. What did I do wrong? What did I do right? Mm -hmm. What was my fault? What did I, I did not have control over that I could still learn from? That's what turns it all into a lessons. They're not failures. They're things that didn't go how we planned. You know. Yeah, I think there's, you know, I've asked that question to just about every guest and there's always people like, oh, I don't believe in failure, this or that. And then as they explain things, it's like, well, yes, you do. You just have a positive interpretation of it. Right. And so it's really reclaiming that of, you know, I, I think one person might have put like the only failure is a failure to learn. Right. So like yeah. everything you go through should be a learning experience, whether the experience itself is independently positive or negative right like you should still be able to pull something away from it and then that can turn everything you know any negative into a positive or any positive into something even more positive i agree a thousand percent that really does say it the best way so dan what is one of the best or most worthwhile investments you've ever made and feel free to interpret the word investments as broadly as you like okay um Let me just think for a moment. Uh, I think the the biggest broad stroke answer and easiest answer is the investment in myself to learn and be open-minded. And no matter how good I do get at something, no matter how great the results are, that actually, rather than becoming complacent, makes me want to learn more. You know, um, wow, if I've done this well with my head up my ass, I could probably do real well if I got my shit together. That's kind of an extreme example, but I think we all need to sort of, you know, consider that. Um, so to me, that the investment in yourself, you cannot quantify and to be open-minded and you never know who you're going to learn from. You can learn not only from experts and, and people who have really done well, but you can learn from people who are just one step above having lived in their car the last three months that are just getting back on track. We can learn from anybody in all the many endless points of life. Um, so I think that's really the biggest read, listen, find your favorite thought leaders that resonate with you and what you do um, and listen to them, follow them on YouTube, listen to their, their podcasts, read books, um, but don't just, immerse yourself in academia, have fun and enjoy life. We don't know how much time we have. And it's so important uh, to not, 
to not take time to do that. I learned the hard way a few years ago and had a big, big health scare. And that just was life changing. And I do my best to balance stuff out as much as I can. I don't work nine to five. I don't take weekends off. But once a month, Angie and I take a full weekend off and we get away. Um, some days we cut it early. Most days I'm up at six in the morning, work till six at night for dinner, take a two hour dinner break, watch a movie, do whatever we do together and then work again till midnight and it starts all over. But we, I, I, after every meeting, after every training I do, uh, throughout the day, I get up, I go outside, I look at my flowers, I walk around a little bit, stretch, breathe some air. That's what keeps me off the news, by the way, believe it or not, it's not drumming. It's not drumming. It's not beating the hell out of things. And, and drumming can also have a lot of finesse. What keeps me uh, off the news is gardening and horticulture. And that's kind of my, my zen is, is I do my walking meditation on all those little breaks with my flowers. And yeah, that's, I think, the biggest lesson um, and giveaway and investment is in yourself in many ways, health-wise, spiritually, educationally, philosophically, the more we can fill all those things up, the more whole we become. Even if you find something peaceful, like just spirituality, I just need to fill that cup till it's almost overflowing. Any of those other areas are deficient. You could be very spiritual, but be 150 pounds overweight, have diabetes, have you know all these other things, and you're not going to be congruent with that peacefulness of spirituality that you sought. So to me, that's really the biggest thing. Invest in yourself, not just in the business sense, in every way possible. And it's never too late. I started studying Tibetan Buddhism when I was 49, 47, 48, 49 years old. Um, just fell in love with it. I'm Jewish by birth. I'm Jewish by, um, um, what? what's the word? By... Uh, Heritage. There we go. Yeah. Big word. Yeah. By heritage. My parents were not orthodox, but I love and respect the, the heritage. And I, I know our culture and everything. Um, I do celebrate some things, but I got a lot out of studying from Pima Chodron, who's written some amazing books from Tibetan Buddhism. She's runs the only North American Tibetan Buddhism monastery. And that just really resonated with me. The only form of meditation where rather than focusing on something, you're pushing everything away. And that's really difficult to, to think of nothing other than thinking of thinking of nothing, but then you are thinking of that. So how do you, it, it's, it, it was great. So I, I really want to encourage everybody, invest in yourself in every department you could think of, get out a piece of paper and make a list health, nutrition, spirituality, business education, relationships, religion. If you're devout, go ahead, dive in even deeper. Whatever it is, as many different points of life you can fill up with brighter light, the more together you're going to be, I believe. That's my advice and what works for me. And I'm still on that journey. I love that. That's fantastic. Thanks. So tell me, what are one to three books that have greatly influenced your life? Ooh, the first one is by Pima Chodron, and it's called When Things Fall Apart. And all her books are quite short. They're like maybe they're not in arm's reach. They're in our libraries. I can't, but they're maybe 100 pages-ish, um, and they're smallish books. When Things Fall Apart came to me in the right time in my life and it was just great 
Business-wise, I think my favorite book is What Makes Business Rock by Bill Rohde. That's R-O-E-D-Y. Hold on. It's... Yes, it's behind me on my bookshelf in, in my office here. R-O-E-D-Y, What Makes Business Rock. Um, he was in the military running a U.S. missile base in Germany. When he left, he got a job working as a cable guy installing cable. Then he ended up working for HBO. Then he ended up working for MTV. Then they came to his office in Manhattan and said, pack your stuff. You're going to London to open MTV there. And he ended up opening MTV in about 30 different countries. It's an amazing story what he learned about working with heads of state and prime ministers in different countries about the cultures and how to make mtv work and how to get over their cultural objections about it and it's a great fit great for me as a media person but a great fit for anybody in any business the third book would have to be You know what? I'm going to give my son a shout out. Um, my son who works for both my companies is also a fiction author. And I learned a lot from watching him go through the journey of writing and publishing his first novel, um, which is fiction. It's horsey. It's horsey. <laughs> it's horror fantasy comedy. It's called Lemons Loom Like Rain. His name is Stephen Schinder, S-H-I-N-D-E-R. And what i got out of that book was he wrote that right out of college and there's a i didn't go to college so there's a lot of college experience there a lot of it takes place with people in college in two different countries which is what he did um but watching him go through that journey and kind of like for me drum talk tv was just an idea I had belly button lint and couch change to start the business with. A lot more belly button lint than couch change at the time, believe me. And watching Stephen kind of start with, his, he wanted to be an author and just do it. And then to to buy, and I did buy his book, the, the actual book, and to hold it in my hand and read it and have been there through the rest of his journey. I learned a lot of lessons from that, a lot of reflective lessons. Um, and he just finished his second novel, which I'm one of the fortunate people that gets to proof it and give some feedback on a questionnaire. It's it's 10 times better than his first. But I just I think I learned not just from the book, of course, Pacifico, but learned from his journey. And Steve doesn't have like business experience whatsoever as far as being an entrepreneur, but he wanted to become an author. He wrote a book and he published it and boom, there he is. He's an author. <laughs> so I learned a lot from that. I hope that worked. <laughs> oh, very cool. I love that. Yeah. So, so Dan, if you could have a gigantic billboard anywhere with anything on it, what would it say and why? Take my courses. No. Um, it would say, <laughs> I'm teasing. That's not what it would say. It would say, I know this is going to just sound so airy-fairy, artsy-fartsy, hippy-dippy, but unfortunately, it's extremely important that this is what I'm thinking of in the year 2001, and that is stop fighting, keep loving. Mm -hmm. I remember being in high school when hostages were taken 
in Iran from the embassy and Jimmy Carter was president and, and, and all the stuff since then with the different presidencies that happened. I remember thinking when my generation gets in the white house, it'll be a different world. Nothing's changed. Countries are still fighting over property, over territory. Countries, cultures are still fighting over cultural differences and territories and beliefs. And I, I am so sick of it. And what's happened in the last year and a half amidst COVID, all the racial tension. For those who don't know, I'm, I'm white, Jewish. Uh, Anja is black and of Jewish heritage as well. And it's, it's like, and my, I have a previous wife who was Mexican. Actually, she still is Mexican, Alicia. And Marcy was <laughs> half, <laughs> half English and half Puerto Rican Indian. You know, so I've always been around a multicultural world. And it just pains me. And, and I think even more than that, I'm just tired of it. I never thought in, in this world today, in this year, we would see what we're seeing on the news. So my billboard is stop fighting, keep loving. There's, I can't believe the things that can't be negotiated and worked out in this world. It's really painful. So mm. bring the 60s back. Everyone just light up a hash pipe and fucking get it together. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe I said that. <laughs> no, the times there are changing. Well, yeah. Dan, who've been some of your heroes throughout your life and how did they help or inspire you? My mother and father, number one. My mother and father never said, you can't do that. They never instilled any sort of limiting belief in me. They always did the opposite. They always supported what I wanted to do, even if they didn't understand it. I learned so much from that. I encouraged, you know, Stephen to be an author when that's what he wanted to do. All, all these different things like that. Um, so my parents, John Bonham, the drummer from Led Zeppelin, was the biggest drumming influence on me. And and that's people. There are so many layers that go deeper than he. He was just my biggest influence on the drums. It was the influence on the drums, learning the nuances of every grain of how he played and how he played it and how that affected the music and what that music did for me, um, the emotion it evoked, the, the, the different spiritual shit, you know, all those things are part of that. So my parents, John Bonham, and after that, my wife is a huge inspiration. We have completely different upbringings, completely different. Um, she does come up from a broken home. She did go through abuse. She, she just so many things are, are different, yet she's just this amazing shining light and this amazing entrepreneur. And plus, she puts up with me. You know, when we met, she had dreadlocks past her like to the middle of her calves. And the first thing I thought of was, this is a patient woman. This woman's for me. Before I even got to know her at that two-hour <laughs> grilling, that's the first thing that came to my mind. Patience, patience, patience. Um, so I, I'd have to say, and just my, on that list, you know, there's a few others in history that I admire. Benjamin Franklin, Albert Einstein, Gene Roddenberry, uh, the people that got NASA where it is, um, you know, different things like that. Um, Carl Sagan, Jacques Cousteau, as I mentioned earlier, those are all big influences on me in different ways. Oh, very cool. 
Well, Dan, this has been such a fun and enlightening conversation, but that does bring me to my final question of the day. And that is, no, what, is the, <laughs> what is the I'm kindest sorry. thing anyone has ever done for you? Wow. Um, there's so many ways to interpret that. Um, um, so I'm rewinding through 58 and a half years of life trying to, you know, I think the kindest thing anyone's ever done for me um i i gotta say enja has um there was something i went through um that was devastatingly life-changing and she was still there for me and had the the patience to be there for me and and help me understand it's okay for me to put that behind me and get back on my feet and and our relationship uh just really grew and grew and i grew as a person out of that rather than a lot of people when they have something happen to them they become really attached to that and it becomes part of their identity and with the training i had in nlp years prior to that i didn't want to let that happen um I have diabetes, which I found out about exactly two years ago, um, and I'm not overweight, and I don't eat candy, and you know that's like a whole other story. Um, I've almost completely reversed it, but I was not going to like identify with my like some people say I'm bipolar, as if it's part of it's a name badge, and it doesn't have to be. And and she really, I, I think her kindness and patience and encouragement and tolerance, and tolerance. Um, it's got to be the kindest thing, yeah, that, that anybody did for me that may have impacted my life in the biggest way, especially in my adult years, for sure. Well, she's an amazing woman. You're very lucky. Oh, thank you. Thanks. Well, Dan, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure getting to speak with you. Thank you, Pacificos. It's an honor to not only be on your show, but to be on a show where you've had so many amazing people from so many different backgrounds with so much to offer of value. So I, I really appreciate you including me. Oh, my pleasure. Today's episode was brought to you by Prosperitas, specializing in making stunning animated videos to help you win more customers and look your best online. Visit prosperitasagency.com today to learn how they create unforgettable videos for unforgettable companies. Thank you so much to all of our listeners for tuning in to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you found us so that others can find it as well. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at the LUE Podcast or visit our website at theluepodcast.com. And if you'd like to support this show even further, I'd love to invite you to become a patron of the show. For as little as $5 per month, you can help us continue to produce high-quality shows with amazing guests like you heard today. To become a patron, please visit patreon.com slash the LUE podcast. We look forward to having you tune in next time for the next episode of Law, the Universe, and Everything. 
I'm Pacifico Soldati, wishing you peace, love, and awesomeness. Mm-hmm.